to welcome to a warm bit the host with Julius Junius Stancardo Stanton. Face is Professor Griff. You're listening to Junius Ricardo Stanton. Straight up, we're teaching you all those things you need to know from the neck up. All right, we're definitely doing a checkup from the neck up. This is Professor Griff from Public Enemy, the ex-minister. I'm out. Peace. Welcome to another edition of Akoben, the War Horn. Akoben is an Indinkra word and symbol from the Akan people of West Africa. It is a specially carved ivory horn that makes a distinct and unique sound. The villagers use it to call for alertness, preparation, assembly, and in extreme cases, mobilization. We sound the Akoben to inform you of happenings in the world that you might not see in the mainstream or corporatist media and to enlighten you and to give you a heads up on some of the things that are going on. As we close out Black History Month 2021, we want to share several pieces that we've written and shared on our blog and some of the newspapers that we write for. And hopefully you will glean some information about little known facts in black history. And we'll do that following these messages. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Greetings to the Internet Radio family. This is Reverend Valentine speaking. You know, for nearly 30 years, I have had the distinct experience of being interviewed over every medium of communication available to the public. And except for the metaphysical underground, I can think of no other electronic venue that has been more progressive, more innovative, more insightful, more diligent, more diverse in its demographics, and more courageously supportive of the truth than this ever-growing phenomenon called Internet Radio. And this is precisely why I'm here to tell you that it is so vital that you give your wholehearted support to it. Tell a friend. In fact, tell two, three, and four of your friends. If you are a business owner, support Internet Radio by telling your customers and constituents all about it. Let them know that there is a legitimate and important substitute to all of the prefabricated, super-censored garbage polluting our public airways today. Don't allow the mass media to continue to treat you like a mindless consumer drone. Enhance your awareness. Indulge your critical thinking, your reasoning, and your analysis. Do as I do. Log on, listen in, and then let it be known all about your internet radio experience. Chimatep, beloved family, thank you for listening. Walk in light. This is a meditative, relaxing moment with Junius Ricardo Stanton encouraging you to relax, let your shoulders drop naturally, normally, breathe in through your nose, take a deep breath, let your abdomen expand, relax, hold it. 
for a count of five, four, three, two, one. Exhale, let your abdomen sink in. Relax, take a deep breath. Inhale, let your abdomen expand. Hold it, five, four, three, two, one. Exhale, softly, relax. Monitor your thoughts. Don't resist what you see, the images. Relax, focus on your breathing. Inhale, deep. Let your abdomen expand. Hold it. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Relax. Continue to monitor your breathing. Focus only on your breathing. Relax. Let the tension flow outward from you. Inhale. Fully, fully expand your abdomen. Fill your lungs with life-giving oxygen and air. Hold it. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Relax, relax, relax. Perk up and be prepared to resume your day in an extremely relaxed state of mind, being, and health. Till next time, stay strong and stay healthy. Listening to Akuban, a call to awareness, a call to alertness, a call to action, and a call to war, with Junius Ricardo Stanton. As we indicated, we're going to share some black history information, and the first one is entitled A Short History of Independent Black Cinema. Quote The first black independent filmmakers began making films for de jure segregated theaters in the South and de facto segregated theaters in the North. There were over 1,000 theaters in America that screened black audience films either exclusively or on a preferential basis. According to archivist G. William Jones, who in the 1980s supervised a major restoration project of early black film, 1921 was a peak year for distribution within this integrated production distribution exhibition system. This system lasted until the mid-1950s. Unquote. A short history of black U.S. indie cinema, Ashley Clark, www.bfi.org.com. UK, four slash news, opinions, short history, black U.S. indie cinema. In 2021, we take for granted the omnipresence of mass media, countless over-the-air broadcasts, satellite programming, theatric films and streaming, 
often with black producers, directors, actors, and support crews. But it wasn't always like this. Blacks were able to get into the recording industry as artists and later owners early on in that medium's history. There was no black-owned radio stations when the medium was launched in the 1920s. It took decades until 1949 before blacks owned a radio station. But there was a movement of black filmmakers in the early 1900s that most of us are totally unaware of. Or, if we are, it is usually relegated to one person, Oscar Mouchot. The history of independent black filmmaking is a storied one, one we should know about because it was a way for black people to tell their stories and show us in a flattering light during a time of virulent racist stereotyping, violence, and oppression. In this oppressive milieu, it took courage, vision, and determination for an African-American to launch a filmmaking enterprise and career. Nevertheless, there were numerous brave souls who accomplished this. Like the recording industry that categorized black artists creating, playing, singing, and recording our own music as race records or race music, independent films produced and directed by African-Americans were called race films, quote-unquote. These daring entrepreneurs created a new genre of film outside the white Hollywood studio system, quote, and they were produced by independent production companies and focused on the everyday life of what it meant to be black in America. While the system was a product and mirror of segregation, it also fostered an entire generation of independent African-American filmmakers and helped establish a black cinema in America, an art form and system where black directors were empowered to be independent, raising money, shooting and editing, and scoring films themselves. These movies gave African-American audiences and actors a forum to articulate their own identity outside of the studio system, which rarely bothered with the full spectrum of that identity. Unquote, race films, the black film industry that told black stories in cinema's earliest days. Paul D. Miller. And you can find that at https colon forward slash forward slash editorial dot rotten tomatoes dot com forward slash article forward slash race movies. Many black people are familiar with Oscar Mouchot, who lived from 1884 to 1951, but there were several pioneering independent filmmakers and motion picture companies telling their stories putting black people on the moving picture screens around the country. In addition to Mouchot, there was Mark Noble and his brother George, who founded the black-owned production company Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Mark also acted in films under the name Noble Johnson. Spencer Williams, 1893-1969, to who also played Andy in the CBS Amos and Andy TV series, directed 13 films. Tressie Saunders, 1897 to 1995, was credited with being the first woman to direct a feature film entitled A Woman's Error, but little is known of her. On the business side, there were black-owned motion picture companies. These independent companies wanted to tell our story, which was different from the racist narrative of the white company. Quote, finally, black Americans could see themselves as lawyers, cowboys, and even royalty. And they weren't gambling, drinking, stealing chickens, shooting craps, or any of the other stereotypes that white Hollywood had chosen for them. If these kinds of stock characters appeared in race movies, they were most often relegated to villainous roles. Meanwhile, in mainstream Hollywood, 
Hattie McDaniel was awarded an Oscar in 1940 for her performance as Mammy, the demeaning, dim-witted servant in Gone with the Wind. During the height of their popularity, race films were shown in as many as 1,100 theaters around the country as an antidote to racism and stereotypes in the entertainment industry, unquote. Race movies and the black-owned studios that thrive next to Hollywood, www.messynessychick.com forward slash 2020. 4-02-4-06 race movies and the black owned studios that ran parallel to mainstream Hollywood. One of the first film entrepreneurs was William Foster who started the Foster Photoplay Company in Chicago in 1910. In 1917, Peter P. Jones founded the Peter P. Jones Photoplay Company. These companies were short-lived for numerous reasons. Lack of capital, new technology, the talking films, and ironically, integration. Most of the films these directors and companies created no longer exist, but those that remain demonstrate an innovation, creativity, and vision that laid the foundation for conscious black artists, entrepreneurs to build upon. To see some of these films, go to www.criterionchannel.com forward slash pioneers of African-American cinema. And again, it's important to realize that these were black owned. There were several companies like Ebony that were white owned that produced black films and that did have a lot of creative input from the director's and oftentimes the actors, but we need to understand that we were able to have our own companies just like we had our own newspapers and other entities. Like I said, we're sharing this because this is little known information. It's not just about artists, celebrities. It's about entrepreneurship. It's about resourcefulness. It's about innovation. It's about the black community supporting black entrepreneurs during a time when there was virulent violence and racism directed towards people of African descent in this country. And here's another one entitled Little Known Black History Facts. Quote, the Underground Railroad ran south as well as north for enslaved people in Texas. Refuge in Canada must have seemed impossibly far away. Fortunately, slavery was also illegal in Mexico. Researchers estimate 5,000 to 10,000 people escaped from bondage into Mexico, says Maria Hamak, who is writing her dissertation about this topic at the University of Texas at Austin. But she thinks the actual number could be even higher, unquote. The little-known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico. Becky Little, www.history.com, forward slash news, forward slash underground railroad, Mexico escape slaves. When we think about our enslaved ancestors escaping bondage, we have been conditioned to think the only direction they went was north. This makes little sense when you consider how far-flung slavery was throughout the United States. Our ancestors sought freedom and escape from brutal bondage and oppression in the British colonies, which later became the United States. But there were other lands adjacent to the U.S., for example, Canada to the north, Florida and Mexico to the south, and neighboring territories to the west. We spoke recently about the black settlements in the Midwestern territories. Now I want to share information about the freedom routes to the south. The Louisiana Purchase in the United States from France in 1803, which was facilitated by France's defeat by the Africans in Haiti, added huge land tracts to the United States. It included the entirety of what is now Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, large portions of North and South Dakota, the area of Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, east of the Continental Divide, and a portion of Minnesota. Many blacks fled into these territories, but they also 
fled south to Mexico and Florida, which were not part of the purchase. Mexico outlawed slavery in 1829. What is now Texas was once part of Mexico, and as such, slavery was abolished there until American whites, many who were slavers and slave owners, rebelled and reestablished the institution of slavery there. Many blacks fled south into Mexico where they were allowed sanctuary. Quote, in 1821, Mexico won its independence from Spain. Still desirous of establishing permanent and productive population in Texas, the impresario system was continued. Stephen F. Austin bought 300 settlers from the United States beginning in early 1822. Because of his proximity to Texas, most of the immigrants came from the American South, and they brought their slaves with them. By the eve of the American Civil War, one-third of the population of Texas was enslaved. From 1830 to 1860, there was a continual movement of runaway slaves into Mexico, and although not as publicized, it was just as common as the movement of runaways into free Northern Territory in Canada. While there are no reliable estimates as to the number of fugitive slaves escaping to Mexico during this time period, it is safe to say that the movement was considerable enough to have caused great irritation and financial hardships on Texas slave owners, unquote. The Underground Railroad, a study of the routes from Texas to Mexico by Georgia Redonet. And this, interestingly enough, was from an honors paper from a middle school student. I got that at uh, https colon four slash four slash uh dot edu honors programs minors four slash honors and the schools four slash Houston Teachers Institute, forward slash curriculum, 2003, forward slash African-American slavery, forward slash Redonet. In addition to fleeing to Mexico, enslaved blacks had a long history of escaping to Florida, which was not part of the Louisiana Purchase. The Spanish colonized Florida in the 16th century, even bringing kidnapped Africans there in 1529. Over time, the Spanish, who were intense imperialist rivals to Britain, used Florida as a buffer against the British colonies, even going so far as encouraging indigenous people and escaped slaves to settle there if they were willing to convert to Catholicism. Spain abolished slavery in Florida in 1693. Quote, because slavery had been abolished in 1693 in Spanish Florida, that territory became a safe haven for runaway slaves. Throughout the 18th century, many free blacks and runaway slaves went to Florida and lived in harmony with the Seminoles. Their proximity to and resulting collaboration with the Seminoles led students of the larger group to refer to them as black Indians, black Seminoles, and eventually, especially among scholars, Seminole Maroons or Seminole Freedmen, unquote. The Black Seminoles, www.britannica.com, forward slash topic, forward slash Black Seminoles. The North was too far away, so many enslaved Africans in the Carolinas and Georgia made their way to Florida. Quote, in the 18th century, Florida was a vast tropical wilderness covered with jungles and malaria-ridden swamps. The Spanish claimed Florida, but they used it only as a buffer between the British colonies and their own settled territories farther south. They wanted to keep Florida as a dangerous wilderness frontier, so they offered a refuge to escaped slaves and renegade Indians from neighboring South Carolina and Georgia. The Gullahs were establishing their own free settlements in the Florida wilderness by at least the late 1700s. They built separate villages of thatched roof houses surrounded by fields of corn and swamp rice. 
and they maintained friendly relations with the mixed population of refugee Indians. In time, the two groups came to view themselves as parts of the same loosely organized tribe in which blacks held important positions of leadership. The Gullahs adopted Indian clothing, while the Indians acquired a taste for rice and appreciation for Gullah music and folklore, unquote. The Gullah, Rice, Slavery, and the Sierra Leone American Connection by Joseph A. Apala. And this is a study done by Yale, https colon forward slash forward slash glc dot yale dot edu forward slash sites forward slash default forward slash files black seminole. We have an ancient and storied history that we need to discover. Our history that predates Arab and European imperialism, colonization, and enslavement that also includes a magnificent record of defense, resistance, and self-determination against imperialism. The quest for freedom in the U.S. is an important portion of this story. And we're going to share one more piece that is consistent with this theme in terms of black resilience, black innovation, and black self-determination. And this piece is entitled U.S. Maroon Settlements. I submitted these to a newspaper that I write for, Scoop USA, so you can go to scoopmedia.com and you can probably see them up there. And they were for this month of February for inclusion in our coverage of black history. U.S. Maroon Settlements. Quote, wherever Africans were enslaved in the world, there were runaways who escaped permanently and lived in free independent settlements. These people and their descendants are known as Maroons, quote unquote. The term probably comes from the Spanish chimaroon, meaning foral livestock, fugitive slave or something wild and defiant. Maroonage, the process of extricating oneself from slavery, took place all over Latin America and the Caribbean in the slave islands of the Indian Ocean, in Angola, and other parts of Africa. But until recently, the idea that Maroons also existed in North America has been rejected by most historians. Unquote. Deep in the swamps, archaeologists are finding how fugitive slaves kept their freedom by Richard Grant, www.smithsonianmag.com, forward slash history, forward slash deep swamps, archaeologists, Fugitive slaves kept freedom. We have been sharing how resilient and resourceful our African ancestors were as they grappled with enslavement and juxtaposing bondage with their desires for freedom. We've shared how they made their way north to the territories, to Mexico and Florida. As little known as this history is, even less is known about the independent, self-sustaining maroon communities in the United States. I discovered one in the southeast Virginia, North Carolina border area. I have interest in this area because my father's people are from Southampton County in Virginia, where Nat Turner had his rebellion. My family lived on the other side of the county County near what is called Tucker Swamp. Part of Nat Turner's story is that when the white militia assembled and rallied against him and overpowered his forces, Turner fled into the woods and hid for a month or so. He was captured when he ventured out of hiding. There are a lot of wetlands in that area in Virginia and North Carolina. One massive tract is called the Great Dismal Swamp. Quote, on the border of Virginia and North Carolina stretches a Great Dismal Swamp. The Great Dismal Swamp, actually, that's the name British colonists gave it centuries ago. The Great Dismal Swamp covers about 190 square miles today, but at its peak, before parts of it were drained and developed, it was around 10 times bigger, spanning roughly 2,000 square miles of Virginia and North Carolina. And it's understandable why people call the swamp dismal. 
quote unquote. Temperatures can reach over 100 degrees. It's humid and soggy, filled with thorns and thickets, teeming with all sorts of dangerous and unpleasant wildlife. The panthers that used to live there are now gone, but even today there are black bears, poisonous snakes, and swarms of yellow flies and mosquitoes. Unlike other runaways, some of whom headed to northern cities, maroons lived in the wilderness, often in difficult-to-reach places. They were determined to build their own self-ruled communities with landscape and the forces of nature, serving as a buffer between their new lives and the society that enslaved them. Over centuries, the swamp became home to thousands of self-sufficient maroons. It is also served as a stopping point for others who were fleeing north on the Underground Railroad. Maroon communities formed on little plots of high ground, islands of relatively dry earth that might cover 20 acres or more. Such islands could each house a few dozen maroons. And based on archaeological evidence, it appears that the maroons built elevated cabins that they lifted above the moist ground using wooden posts. They most likely cultivated rice and grain fields and participated in trade and cooperation with maroon communities on neighboring islands. But it's hard to say for certain. Unquote. The Great Dismal Swamp, HTTPS colon four slash four slash 99% invisible dot org four slash episode four slash great dismal swamp the swamp land provided a long history of refuge and sanctuary for enslaved africans escaping the ravages of bondage the environment was harsh but that also served as protection few slave catchers would venture into the vast swamps quote from the 1760s until the Civil War, runaway slave ads in the Virginia and North Carolina newspapers often mentioned the Dismal Swamp as the likely destination, and there was persistent talk of permanent maroon settlements in the morass. British traveler J.F.D. Smythe, or Smith, writing in 1784, leaned this description. Quote, runaway Negroes have resided in these places for 12, 20, or 30 years and upwards subsisting themselves in the swamp upon corn, hogs, and fowl. On higher ground, they have erected habitations and cleared small fields around them, unquote. Deep in the swamp, archaeologists are finding how fugitive slaves kept their freedom by Richard Grant, www.smithsonianmag.com, forward slash history, forward slash deep swamps, archaeologists, fugitive slaves kept freedom. Our ancestors created self-sufficient, sustaining settlements within the dismal swamp. They grew their own food fished, hunted, and fortified their areas to protect themselves from the intruders. The history of the Dismal Swamp Maroons is not well known because they left no written records of their settlements, and whites were reticent to tell our stories of resistance against their slave system. Nevertheless, whites knew of them, but most were reluctant to enter or chase escaping slaves into the area. Quote, while it is unclear exactly how many Maroons inhabited the Dismal Swamp during the 18th and 19th centuries, runaway slave advertisements, travel accounts, published personal narratives, and contemporary newspaper and magazine articles all suggest that individual runaways consistently sought freedom in the Great Dismal Swamp beginning in the latter portion of the 18th century until the Civil War. Although recent scholarly interest in the Dismal Swamp focuses on the commercial enterprises it once engendered, the history of the swamp's main occupants and workers, African Americans, remains relatively unexplored. Even less known are the identities and everyday lives of Maroons who worked in the swamp alongside free and slave laborers, unquote. Between slavery and freedom, African Americans in the Great Dismal Swamp, 1776 to 1863, by Edward 
Downing, Maris, Wolf, College of William and Mary, Arts and Science, https colon four slash four slash scholarworks dot wm dot edu four slash cgi four slash view content. More and more of our ancestral history is coming to light. We owe it to ourselves to familiarize ourselves with it, study it, and embrace it. And that's my view and that's what I believe and that's why it's important to study black history because black history is world history, African American history is American history. And it should be intertwined and integrated and told in a manner that reflects the resilience, the brilliance, the resoluteness of these people who came here, most of whom who arrived in chains as kidnapped Africans who ilked out a way and made great progress in developing this country, but also showed what they could do to escape marginalization and their apartheid condition and how they developed strong, vibrant communities on their own and then what happened to them. And so that's a great field of open research and we encourage those who have an interest in history and who have the resources or who are willing to garner the resources just like the independent filmmakers garnered the researchers to make their films and distribute their films and exhibit their films so that we can know our history because a people without a history is like a tree without roots and a tree without roots cannot survive or stand so until next time this is junius ricardo stanton encouraging you to engage in mental decolonization free your mind the rest will follow till next time stay strong and stay healthy peace (laughs) 